Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Welcome to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are happy once again to connect up with Colonel John Eidsmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, I understand today we're going to be learning a little bit about uh, Patrick Henry, one of my favorite founding fathers. But before we go there, there are some current events that uh, you are involved in. Tell us about them. There's a very, very important case that is going before the Supreme Court. It's called Dobbs versus Jackson, Jackson Women's Medical Center, I believe it is. And anyway, it involves a Mississippi law. Mississippi adopted a law a couple of years ago that called the Mississippi Gestational Age Act, and this act prohibits abortions anytime after the 15th week of pregnancy. Frankly, I wish the court had selected the Alabama statute as being the case for them to consider. Our law prohibits abortion at any stage of pregnancy, but... They chose Mississippi's, and I think in the course of that, we'll see a landmark decision that may affect all of the others as well. As probably most of our listeners know, back in 1973, in Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court ruled that abortion is a constitutional right, even though it is not found anywhere in the Constitution, and that therefore the laws of Texas and of Most other states, nearly all other states at that time, were therefore unconstitutional. And this led to, in effect, abortion on demand in the United States. And anyway, in the last few years, there have been increasing signs that the court might be more willing to approve more restrictive laws. And so various states have been adopting statutes that would require that the mother be informed of the stages of fetal development, there being a waiting period and various other requirements like this. And then in the last several years, we've had several states that have adopted laws that prohibit abortion all the way back to when a fetal heartbeat can be felt. The court previously said in Roe versus Wade that the state's interest in protecting unborn life becomes compelling at the age of viability. Viability meaning when the baby is able to survive outside the womb, which back in 1973 was considered to be at the end of the sixth month of pregnancy. And even that has been changed a great deal since then with advancing medical science. But a number of states have said no. It should be when fetal heartbeat can be detected. Now, a fetal heartbeat can be detected four weeks or 28 days after conception. The heart is actually beating probably as early as 18 days. And we have argued in the past that this test makes a lot more sense than the viability test. As to viability, that's just a question, can the baby live outside the womb And that is going to be the subjective opinion of a doctor who's going to bring in his own prejudices, but is also going to be varying with the individual child. Some babies are just stronger and healthier than others. And it's also going to vary with the time 
because back in 1973, the age of viability was, they say, about six months. Now it has been with advanced medical science moved back to about the fifth month or before. And even that is probably going to be sooner than that in the next few years as medical science advances. So a number of states then have been adopting laws like this, hoping to challenge Roe versus Wade. And the Supreme Court accepted the Mississippi law for challenge. And so that will probably be argued in the Supreme Court sometime this fall. But Mississippi submitted its brief to the Supreme Court in support of their law last Thursday. And that meant that organizations that were going to file friend of the court briefs had to submit theirs by tomorrow, this Thursday, And so we just submitted ours just a few minutes ago, about a half hour ago. And at the Foundation for Law, we joined with Lutherans for Life in this brief. I'm on the board of Lutherans for Life, and so the two organizations together filed the brief. Now, when you're doing an amicus or friend of the court brief, you aren't really making the kind of argument that the party itself would make. Rather, There'll probably be, oh, I would guess, dozens of organizations that'll file amicus briefs, and rather than each one simply repeating the same arguments that the petitioner, the state of Mississippi, made, in your amicus brief, you try to stress a few things that maybe the petitioner didn't stress. And so in our brief, we noted that commonly, when the Supreme Court overrules a case, They do so not just all of a sudden, but they try to say that this has been a course correction from a decision that really was wrong and proved unworkable from the very beginning. And some people have tried to say, well, because of this principle of stare decisis, let the decision stand. Once the Supreme Court is deciding a case, that decision has to stand and It is set in concrete and can't be changed. Oh, maybe a few cases like the segregation decision, Plessy versus Ferguson, that could be changed with Brown versus Board of Education, maybe a few others, but we don't really change established decisions. But the fact of the matter is, the Supreme Court has overruled previous decisions no less than 300 times in its history. And we feel there's a good reason to believe that they will overrule Roe versus Wade this time. Commonly, though, when the Supreme Court overrules a previous decision, they'll say, well, that decision wasn't workable from the beginning. They'll try to say, look, this decision was widely criticized when it came out. A lot of state legislators have challenged it. A lot of state Supreme Courts have questioned it. And it's always been divisive, even here in our court. And so when we overrule that decision today, we're just taking the step that should have been taken a long time ago. Roe versus Wade itself in 73 was a 7-2 decision. It was probably the most widely criticized Supreme Court decision since the Dred Scott decision way back in the 1850s. And Not only was it widely criticized then, but that criticism has continued 
and even increased over the years. And anyway, so what we tried to establish in our brief is that decisions of the Supreme Court since Roe versus Wade have showed a gradual shift away from Roe versus Wade. And as early as the early 1980s with the Akron versus Akron Reproductive Services case, Justice O'Connor had just come on the court and she dissented from the court majority. So instead of seven to two, as Roe versus Wade was, this time it is six to three. And she says, Roe versus Wade is on a collision course with itself. Now, what she meant by that was that on the one hand, the age of viability is moving back further and further toward actual birth. In other words, children can be viable much sooner than before. On the other hand, the age at which abortions could be performed safely is being moved back further and further almost toward childbirth itself. So as these two meet, Roe versus Wade is on a collision course with itself. And then in the Thornburg case, in the later 1980s, Justice Berger, Chief Justice, who had, some think, reluctantly joined with Justice Blackman in Roe versus Wade, he joined the dissent and said that we never really anticipated that there would be the widespread abortion on demand that there has been. And so I think it's time that we reconsider Roe versus Wade. We have three more decisions since that time. We have the Webster versus Reproductive Services, where the court says we're going to approve certain restrictions on abortion that the court wouldn't have approved some years ago. Casey versus Planned Parenthood from Pennsylvania, where the court goes further in that direction. And by this time, we have four of nine justices ready to overturn Robus's Wade. Now, with the partial birth abortion decision with Gonzalez versus Carhartt, court saying that the state or the federal government can prohibit partial birth abortion. And now with Justice Gorsuch, Justice Kavanaugh, and Justice Barrett on the court, we think it's likely the court will take that final step. Back to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are with Colonel John Eitzmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Well, Colonel, I'm excited to learn a little bit more, or at least go into a little bit greater depth, about uh, the life of uh, Founding Father Patrick Henry. Where do we begin? Well, let's begin with the Bible. Let's go to Jeremiah, Jeremiah 6.14. They have healed also the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, Peace peace when there is no peace. Now that phrase, peace, peace, when there is no peace, we usually associate that phrase with Patrick Henry, and many times without realizing that when Patrick Henry spoke those words out of that great speech in the Virginia Commons, where he declared, give me liberty or give me death, that he was quoting from the Bible. And in fact, throughout that speech, 
he quoted from the Bible repeatedly. Patrick Henry was called by Thomas Jefferson, who had some rivalries with Henry, but Jefferson called him the greatest orator that ever lived. John Randolph of Roanoke said of Henry, the united powers of painting and eloquence could alone give a faint idea of what he was, a Shakespeare and Garrick combined. And he said that when Henry was speaking, one felt like whispering to his neighbor, hush, don't stir, don't speak, don't even breathe. Well, a lot of people, though, think that that's all Henry was, just a great orator. But in fact, Henry was so much more. Henry was also a great intellect. Spencer Roan, a friend of his and a man who Thomas Jefferson probably would have named Chief Justice to the Supreme Court if he had had the opportunity to name a Chief Justice. But just uh, Judge Spencer Roan said of Patrick Henry, his genius was as far soaring above those of ordinary men as is the first qualified land of Kentucky beyond the sandy barrens of Pea Ridge. That he was acquainted with ancient history and mythology need no further proof than the eloquent parallel used by him in his arguments in the British decades between Rhadamanthus, Nero, and George III. I believe he was very fond of history, magazines, good poetry or plays, Shakespeare's, and I think he was a very good geographer. He was particularly well acquainted with geography, rivers, soil, climate, etc. of America. His speeches show that he was very well acquainted with English history. I think he had some acquaintance with mathematics and natural philosophy. Now, Jefferson was sort of a rival of Patrick Henry in many ways. And Jefferson said of Patrick Henry, speaking negatively, well, he was lazy. When the courts were closed for the winter season, he would make up a party of poor hunters of his neighbors and go off into the piney woods and pass weeks in hunting deer, which he was passionately found. He never undertook to draw legal pleadings if he could avoid it or manage that part of a cause, very unwillingly be but as an assistant to speak in a cause. Well, it's interesting you would say that because years after both Henry and after Jefferson had died, somebody discovered Patrick Henry's account books, and they discovered that during the period of time that Henry and Jefferson were both in law practice, Henry handled 1,185 lawsuits and prepared many more papers out of court, where Jefferson handled only 504. And Henry began rather modest in life, but died a rich man. Jefferson lived in a pretty well-to-do family, but he died in debt, so that might be an interesting comparison of the two. When we look to his family, well, he was born in 1736. His father was a vestryman in the Episcopal Church, and from his father, Patrick Henry learned love of the church and love of worship. His mother was a Scottish Presbyterian, although she also had some English blood. In fact, she was a descendant of King Alfred the Great, that king in England in the late 18 or the late 
And she was a Presbyterian. And when he learned the stability and love of the church that his father had, an Episcopalian, he learned zeal and Calvinist doctrine from his mother. And they would attend services in the morning and in the evening both. As a little boy, Patrick Henry was required to take notes on the sermon and then recite them in the carriage on the way home. He had an uncle, Patrick Henry, same name. Patrick Henry's uncle taught him to be true and just in all my dealings, to bear no hatred or malice in my heart, to keep my hands from picking and stealing, not to covet other men's goods, but to learn and labor truly to get my own living and to do my duty in that state of life under which it shall please God to call me. A schoolmaster of his, a pastor Samuel Davies, was a follower of John Knox, the founder of Presbyterianism, and Davies taught young Patrick Henry Calvinist doctrine, also taught him the skill of oratory, and a sermon of his, the curse of cowardice, probably influenced Henry throughout his life. And one thing you'd probably never want to say about Henry, you'd never want to call him a coward. In fact, an interesting story about Patrick Henry, and talks about when the legislature was marching on Charlottesville, and the legislators had had to flee to Staunton as a result, but Patrick Henry, Benjamin Harrison, Judge Tyler, and Colonel Christian were fleeing to Staunton, and they saw a little hut in the forest. An old woman was chopping wood by the door. The men were hungry and stopped to ask her for food. Who are you, she asked. We're members of the legislature, said Henry. We have just been compelled to leave Charlottesville on account of the British. She said in wrath, ride on then, ye cowardly knaves. Here are my husband's sons just gone to Charlottesville to fight for you, and you running away with all your might? Clear out, ye shall have nothing here. But we were obliged to flee, said Henry. It wouldn't do for the legislature to be broken up by the enemy. Here is Benjamin Harrison. You don't think he would have fled had it not been necessary? I'd always thought a great deal of Mr. Harrison till now, answered the old woman, but he'd no business to run from the enemy. And she started to shut the door in their faces. Wait a moment, my good woman, cried Patrick Henry. Would you believe that Judge Tyler or Colonel Christian would take to flight if there were not good cause? No, I wouldn't. But he said, this is Judge Tyler, and this is Colonel Christian. They are? Well, I would never have thought it. I didn't suppose they'd ever run from the British. But since they have, they shall have nothing to eat in my house. You may ride along. Things were getting desperate. Then Judge Tyler stepped forward. What would you say, my good woman, if I were to tell you that Patrick Henry fled with the rest of us? Patrick Henry, she answered angrily, I should tell you there wasn't a word of truth in it. Patrick Henry would never do such a cowardly thing. But this is Patrick Henry, said Judge Tyler. The old woman was astonished, but she stammered and pulled at her apron string and said, well, if that's Patrick Henry, it must be all right. Come in and you shall have the best I have in the house. That shows you something of what a reputation Henry had for courage. But Henry was probably the most respected man in America at the time, with the exception of George Washington. And in fact, Washington tried to give him numerous offices, among them being 
vice president, secretary of state, chief justice. Henry refused all of these, but Henry certainly was a man who served in many remarkable ways, six terms as governor of Virginia. Nobody before or since has been governor of Virginia that many terms, but let's see a little more about him after the break. Once again, welcome back to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law, learning a little bit more about uh, Patrick Henry. And I have to say, Colonel, um, he appears to live up to the reputation that I've understood him to have as, as a bit of a firebrand. Oh, very much so. But at age 24, Henry decided he'd become a lawyer and... Anyway, in those days, most people didn't even go to law school, and Henry didn't. Rather, he just simply read law books to study and then went to take the oral exam. And as he did so, well, they noticed that he wasn't well acquainted with a lot of the legal texts and histories. But after they interviewed him, questioned him, cross-examined him, then Randolph said, You defend your opinions well, sir, but now to the law and the testimony. And he showed him these various law books. Behold, you have never seen these books, nor this principle of law, and yet you are right and I am wrong. And if from this lesson which you have given me, I trust, will never trust to appearances again, Mr. Henry, if your industry be only half equal to your genius, I augur that you will do well and become an ornament and an honor to your profession. Well, he came to the defense of some tobacco farmers who objected to having to pay a tax to support the English Episcopal clergy. And anyway, he was a Christian, but he didn't much like these clergy, and he didn't like the law saying that these men had to pay taxes, even though they were not Anglican. And anyway, so in his closing argument to the, to the jury, he says, We have heard a great deal about the benevolence and holy zeal of our reverend clergy. But how is this manifested? Do they manifest their zeal in the cause of religion and humanity by practicing the mild and benevolent precepts of the gospel of Jesus? Do they who the naked? Oh, no, gentlemen. Instead of feeding the hungry and clothing the naked, these rapacious harpies would, were their powers equal to their will, snatch from the hearth of their honest parishioner his last hoe cake, from the widow and her orphan children their last milch cow, the last bed, nay, the last blanket from the lying in woman. Now the law was plainly on the side of the clergy. They were entitled to this by law, so He said, you can't really rule against them, but I'm going to ask you to bring a verdict in their favor for one penny. And that's exactly what the jury did. On another occasion, when Henry was traveling in Spotsylvania County, came to the courthouse, 
to argue a case and sat down in the back of the courtroom to listen to the arguments, waiting for his turn for his case. And there were two Baptist ministers who were on trial there for preaching without a license from the Church of England. And you didn't have to be necessarily in agreement with the Church of England to preach, but you had to have their license. And these Baptist ministers had refused to do so. As Henry is listening to this case, he stands up and he says to the court, Your Honor, what do I hear? Do I hear that these men are charged with the crime of preaching the gospel of the Son of God? And when informed that, yes, that's basically what's happening here, he asked to join the defense. He argued for them, lost the case, because the plain fact is the law was against them, paid their fine for them, and told them, you keep on preaching, and if you ever have more trouble, come to me again. But on another occasion, we see where he differs from Jefferson, and he differs from Madison on religious liberty. And the difference came in on the question of whether or not there should be a tax to support clergy. Now, he had opposed, as we've seen before, a tax that would only support the Anglican clergy. But a new tax was proposed that would go to support all Christian Protestant clergy. And anyway, so Henry said, well, if it's going to be support of Christians as a whole, that, I'm sorry, I apologize. It wasn't Christian Protestant. It was just Christian. I was thinking of South Carolina. But anyway, he said, if it's going to be to support all of them, then I think it's fine. And that's where Madison and Jefferson disagreed with him. Now, to get a tax passed in Virginia that time, it had to pass the House of Burgesses three times. And with Henry there, with his powers of oratory, he was able to defeat Madison and Jefferson twice. But the third time, the third year it came up, he had been elected back to the governor's office again, and so without him in the legislature that time, the bill was defeated. But it shows us that he was a defender of religious liberty, but didn't see religious liberty as barring aid that would go to the support of Christianity as a whole. One thing else we're going to find about Patrick Henry is that in the later years of his life, he became a very strong opponent of this idea that we call deism. And he wrote to his daughter one time, among other strange things said of me, I hear it is said by the deists that I am one of their number, and indeed that some good people think I am no Christian. This thought gives me much more pain than the charge of Tory, because I think religion of infinitely higher importance than politics. And I find much cause to reproach myself that I have lived so long and given no decided and public proofs of my being a Christian. But indeed, my dear child, this is a character which I prize far above all that this world has or can boast. His grandson, Patrick Henry Fontaine, wrote of him that he regularly attended church, regularly read sermons. He said that after the evening service, his family would gather and they would sing hymns together and he would accompany them on the violin, that he spent an hour every day that simply reading the scriptures and no one was allowed to intrude upon him at that time. He was baptized, made a member of the Episcopal Church, 
at an early time of life and showed every outward sign of being a Christian. But we're going to talk a little more toward the end here about the way he shows his Christian faith right at the time of his death. But in the meantime, let's talk a little bit about his role in opposing the Constitution of the United States. One of the strongest supporters of independence, but he was concerned about the Constitution. In fact, he said when the call for the convention came out in 1787 that I smell a rat. And he says that because he fears that the result of this convention is going to be a government that has far greater power than he wanted government to have. Henry, as a Calvinist, believed in the depravity of human nature. And because of that, he feared government power. He would certainly go along with what Lord Acton would say a century later when he said that power tends to corrupt, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And a lot of people forget what Acton's next words were. And great men are almost always bad men. And so Henry is very concerned about this convention. He is afraid that the convention is going to lead to greater power for the federal government, and he strongly opposes this. And anyway, so he did not attend the convention, but afterward he was one of the leaders throughout the country in opposing the Constitution. You know, after the convention was adopted there, after they adopted the Constitution, it went back to Congress. Congress approved it and sent it to the states for ratification. And it would not be approved until it had been ratified by nine of the 13 states. And Patrick Henry is leading the opposition in the state of Virginia. Here's part of what he argues. Where are your checks in this government? Your strongholds will be in the hands of your enemies. It is on a supposition that your American governors shall be honest, that all the good qualities of this government are founded, but its defective and imperfect construction puts it in their power to perpetuate the worst of mischiefs, should they be bad men. And, sir, would not all the world, from the eastern to the western hemispheres, blame our distracted folly? in resting our rights upon the contingency of our rulers being good or bad, show me that age or country where the rights and liberties of the people were placed on the sole chance of their rulers being good men without a consequent loss of liberty. He was concerned, for example, that the sword and the purse, that is the power to declare war and the power to raise taxes, were both in the same hand, the hand of Congress and he argued very strenuously against this, and we will see a little more after this break what the result of all this argument is. Welcome you back to our fourth and final segment of today's Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. 
learning about Patrick Henry. And it was kind of a cliffhanger as we ended the last segment. Let's uh, let's pick up right where we left off, Colonel. Tyler writes about the Virginia Ratifying Convention. And this was important because as of this time, when the Ratifying Convention takes place, eight states have ratified the Constitution, as far as they knew. And so now it comes to Virginia, the largest state, and some say the intellectual center of America at that time. It had moved from Massachusetts in the 1600s to Pennsylvania in the early 1700s to Virginia in the late 1700s. And now, of course, the intellectual center of America is, as everybody knows, Alabama. But at any rate, Tyler writes concerning the convention in Virginia, within the convention itself, at the opening of the session, it was claimed by friends of the new government that they then outnumbered their opponents by at least 50 votes. Their great champion in debate was James Madison, who was powerfully assisted, first or last, by Edmund Pendleton, John Marshall, George Nicholas, Francis Corbin, George Wythe, James Innes, General Henry Lee, and especially by that same Governor Randolph, who, after denouncing the Constitution for features so odious that he could not agree to it, had finally swung completely around to its support. Some of the greatest intellects in America, they're gathered in Virginia in that ratifying convention to support the Constitution. But Tyler continues, against all this array of genius, learning, and character, logical acumen and eloquence, Patrick Henry held the field as protagonist for 23 days, his chief lieutenants in the fight being Mason, Grayson, and John Dawson, with occasional help from Harrison, Monroe, and Tyler. Upon him alone fell the brunt of the battle. Out of the 23 days of that splendid tourney, there were but five days in which he did not take the floor. In the aggregate, his speeches constitute nearly one quarter of the entire book of the convention, a book of 663 pages. Well, just before the vote was taken, the supporters of the Constitution announced in answer to Patrick Henry and his objection that there was no Bill of Rights, that if the Constitution were adopted, they would immediately go to work on a Bill of Rights. And with that promise, the vote was taken. And instead of winning by 50-plus votes, as the supporters said they had, it passed by a vote of 87 to 79. And then the supporters of the Constitution celebrated, because now that was the ninth state. What they didn't know was that six days earlier, New Hampshire had already ratified, so they were really the tenth state. The fax machines weren't working very well at that time. But then a group of angry anti-federalists gathered for what could have been a violent demonstration. Patrick Henry came out to address them, and he said, the Constitution has now been ratified. We are all federalists now. I suggest you all go home. And they did. Well, I don't know if they went home, but at least they didn't stay there. But as we move to 1799, and we see Patrick Henry's death, as he lies on his deathbed, again, his grandson, Patrick Henry Fontaine, was present. And he gives us an eloquent account of what happened at this time. 
he says, well, maybe before I read this, just considering the time factor here, I want to make that last, what he writes to his sister when her husband, Colonel Tristan, dies in 1786. He says, I am at a loss how to address you, my dearest sister. Would to God I could say something to give relief to the dearest of women and sisters. This is one of the trying scenes in which the Christian is eminently superior to all others and finds a refuge that no misfortune can take away. To this refuge, let my dearest sister fly with humble resignation. I think I can see some traces of a kind providence to you and the children, giving you a good son-in-law, so necessary at this time to take charge of your affairs. For indeed, my dearest sister, you never knew how much I loved you and your husband. My heart is full. Perhaps I may never see you in this world. Oh, may we meet in heaven, to which the merits of Jesus will carry those who love and serve him. Heaven will, I trust, give you its choicest comfort and preserve your family. Such is the prayer of him who thinks it is honor and pride to be your affectionate brother, Patrick Henry. Patrick Henry read Thomas Paine's Age of Reason, was so offended by it that he wrote a refutation of it. Someone read that refutation and said, it is the best refutation of deism I have ever read. But Henry didn't think it was that good, and so he never had it published, and it has never been discovered. But as he lay dying on June 6, 1799, he was 63, he had an intestinal ailment, his family is surrounding him, but Patrick Henry Fontaine is present, and here's how he describes the last minutes. On June 6th, all other remedies having failed, Dr. Cable proceeded to administer to him a dose of liquid mercury. Taking the vial in his hand and looking at it for a moment, the dying man said, I suppose, doctor, this is your last resort. The doctor replied, I am sorry to say, governor, that it is. Acute inflammation of the intestines has already taken place. And unless it is removed, mortification will ensue, if it is not already commenced, which I fear. What will be the effect of this medicine? asked the old man. It will give you relief, or the kind-hearted doctor cannot finish the sentence. His patient took up the word. You mean, doctor, that it will either give relief or prove fatal immediately? The doctor answered, you can only live a very short time without it and it may possibly relieve you. Then Patrick Henry said, excuse me, doctor, for a few minutes, and drawing over his eyes a silken cap which he usually wore, and still holding the vial in his hand, he prayed in clear words, a simple childlike prayer for his family, for his country, and for his own soul, then in the presence of death. Afterward, in perfect calm, he swallowed the medicine. Meanwhile, Dr. Cable, who greatly loved him, went out upon the lawn, and in his grief threw himself down upon the earth under one of the trees, weeping bitterly. Soon, when he had manifested or mastered himself, the doctor came back to the patient, whom he found calmly watching the congealing of the blood under his fingernails, and speaking words of love and peace to his family, who were weeping around his chair. Among other things, he told them that he was thankful for that goodness of God, which having blessed him all his life, was then permitting him to die without pain. Finally, fixing his eyes with much tenderness on his dear friend, Dr. Cable, who was not a Christian, he asked the doctor to observe 
how great a reality and benefit the Christian religion was to a man about to die. And after Patrick Henry had spoken to his beloved physician, those few words in praise of something which, having never failed him before in all his life, did not then fail in his very last need of it. He continued to breathe very softly for some moments, after which they who were looking upon him saw that his life had departed. But perhaps his last words are words spoken thereafter, because when we read his last will and testament, penned in his own hand, he says, this is all the inheritance I can give to my dear family. And I might add, it was quite a bit. It was a large inheritance. But he adds, the religion of Christ can give them one which will make them rich indeed. And that's the heritage that Patrick Henry leaves with us. The religion of Christ and the principles of Christian civilization. Patrick Henry was a believer. And his being a believer affected everything he did in his public life. We can certainly say that Patrick Henry is one of the most important of all of our founding fathers. What the Virginia House of Burgesses would have done without Patrick Henry being there to urge them to stand for independence and give me liberty, give me death, who knows? And even though Patrick Henry was not successful in defeating the Constitution, and I guess ultimately we're thankful for that. But nevertheless, Patrick Henry's objections to the Constitution probably were one of the main things that persuaded Madison and its supporters to argue for a Bill of Rights. And along with James Madison, and along with George Mason, we could probably call Patrick Henry one of the leading fathers of the Bill of Rights. But I think as we look at him and we think of those words once again, give me liberty or give me death, we think how much, how many Americans over these 200 some years have taken courage from these words and gone out to defend our nation, whether in war or in peace. 